If you're new to Calvary Chapel, if you haven't been here for a while, we study through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 6 of Revelation. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. The topic we'll find there, the tribulation begins as four colorful horses are sent galloping out of heaven. The title of our message, the horses of a different color. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I pray that we would take advantage of it. You're here to meet with us in a very special way. You walk in the midst of your church, you say, and your spirit is here, Lord, to touch our hearts. In the book of the Revelation, you say that we should hear what the spirit has to say to us and to the church. And we certainly want that to be our prayer. Guide and direct us through this text, Lord. It's an ancient text, but it reads like uh, today's newspaper and it's certainly applicable to our lives. Keep us focused on Jesus throughout because this, after all, is your revelation, the revelation of you, not just events, Lord, but of you behind them seeking to save the lost. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, they're lost, they're perishing, that you would save them by the uh, grace of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The best part of going to the movies, the trailers that show before the main feature. If I don't see at least four movie trailers, I walk. Well, that's not true, but I get disappointed. For a potential blockbuster, they release a teaser before any of the filming has been done on the actual movie. The recent Cinderella had a teaser that only showed you the glass slipper right at the end. But you knew from that iconic image what was intended. I remember when we first saw the teaser for The Fellowship of the Ring. Being huge fans of the books, we nearly screamed when we saw the one ring spinning on the screen. That's all they had to show, and we knew. A teaser for Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, was attached to the films The Siege and A Bug's Life. A lot of people paid for admission to those films just to watch the trailer, and then they walked out after the trailer had been screened. We... We're going to do that at one point. There was another Lord of the Rings trailer that was going to show in front of a movie called Secondhand Lions. And we thought, well, we'll give this movie 10 minutes. It turned out to be an okay movie, and so we didn't have to walk out. But I know you think this is crazy. You're thinking, movies? What's a movie? But uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm a Christian. I don't go to the movies. But anyway, so if I've lost you on the introduction, you're in, you're in real trouble now. Because our text in Revelation chapter 6, it's a little like a teaser trailer. Because it introduces us to the future seven-year tribulation. Six seals on a seven-sealed scroll are opened, each releasing or revealing a terrible judgment upon the earth. It is a preview of things to come in that the six seals span the first half of the tribulation, taking us actually a little bit into the second half. They're an overview of the first three and one half years. We'll get fill-in details as we go on. Unlike the movies, the tribulation is nothing to get excited about. Billions of people will die by the time it's over. One very special group of people are mentioned in this opening chapter of the tribulation, the tribulation martyrs. They start the seven years as non-believers, but they come to Jesus during the judgments, and they are, we'll read, slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you hear the voice of the martyrs crying out in heaven. Number two, you hear the voices of the martyrs crying out on the earth. 
First of all, let's listen to the voice of the martyrs in verses 1 through 11. Now, we're in a mind-blowing age of special effects when it comes to movies. If a director isn't careful, his characters can become overshadowed by the effects and their story fade into the background. We want to be careful to not lose the characters as we see the judgments of the tribulation. It is about people, about sharing Jesus Christ with them, offering them one last chance to repent, to be saved, to not perish eternally before Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And so, yeah, there's going to be some fantastic images and a lot of explanations that we're going to have to give. But this is about God reaching out to people. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached in a variety of ways with the judgments as a background so that people will have their opportunity to know the Lord. And so chapter 6, verse 1, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So begins the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. Author and pastor Mark Hitchcock says there are at least 35 scriptural names for the seven-year tribulation. In this chapter, at the end, it's going to be called the great day of his wrath. They're all describing this same period of time. Chapters 6 through 18 describe it in great detail as one by one, seven seals are opened by Jesus in heaven on a scroll that he has taken out of his father's right hand. It's our position that the revelation is chronological. As each seal is opened, we go deeper into the seven years. When the seventh seal is opened, we'll see that seven trumpets are blown in order. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the earth. In other words, the seventh seal is seven trumpets being blown in order, and the seventh trumpet is seven bowls being poured out in order. Thus, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls cannot be simultaneous. They can't overlap each other. They must be chronological because they come out of each other. And I just point this out in case you're doing some studying on your own. There are those who like to say, well, we really can't get any timing for the tribulation. We don't know when things happen. It's just kind of there. We don't know when the trumpets are blown or not. Well, actually, we do. You have seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls, and they cannot be anything other than chronological. Very, very important. Jesus likened the tribulation. He said it would be like a woman in labor about to deliver a baby. Labor pains generally start slowly, and then they intensify up to the delivery. The tribulation is going to be like that. The first six seals, although they are all ap uh, opened here in chapter 6, they follow one another at a relatively slow pace. The events they describe, as I've said, span a period of about three and a half years, or what we call the first half of the tribulation. At the seventh seal, the trumpets and then the bowls describe events from about that midpoint on to the end. And if you get to the bowls, they're like one right after the other in rapid succession, just like a woman's labor pains. If you look for the opening of all seven seals, you'll find that chapters 6, 8, 9, 15, 16, 19, and 20 are following each other uh, in terms of the seals. The chapters in between those are like footnotes that give you additional details of the events being described. 
Okay, so I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. The angel speaks with a voice like thunder because a storm is about to break forth on the earth. When he says come and see, he isn't talking to John. The word means proceed. It's a word of command from God's throne. The time has finally arrived for Jesus to proceed and open the seals and we would all say amen to that because of all the suffering and the tragedy that we see on this planet from the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ until now, waiting for this moment when Jesus Christ would take the scroll, open the seals, and finish history as we know it to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. So amen to that. Jesus, proceed. And I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. The four horsemen are one of the most familiar literary and artistic images in history. Even non-believers know something apocalyptic is coming when they see these four horsemen represented in some way. Maybe they haven't even read the Bible, but they know that it's an image that comes out of Christianity and the Bible, and it means something terrible is about to happen. The first horseman is thought by some to represent Jesus since the Lord returns in his second coming on a white horse. But this rider does not represent Jesus Christ. For one thing, Jesus is in heaven opening the seals. He is not simultaneously on the earth on his white steed. Jesus does not return until all seven seals with the trumpets and bowls have been opened, and then he comes back. For another thing, when Jesus returns to the earth, he establishes peace and a kingdom of peace. His return isn't followed by war or famine or any of the terrible things that these four horsemen bring. The white horseman releases the man we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. He is represented as coming on a white horse because he is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ. Anti means instead of. And so he comes instead of Jesus Christ, instead of the Jewish Messiah, and Jews will believe that he is their Messiah, but he is a false Christ. He appears at the very beginning of the tribulation, bringing the world an unprecedented peace. Notice he has a bow. Don't automatically conclude that this is describing a bow that an archer would carry. The first use of the word bow in scripture, it's just after the flood of Noah's day when God promised he would do what? He would put a bow in the clouds, what we call a rainbow. That bow was the sign of God's covenant with mankind. This rider on the white horse comes with a covenant. He comes with a treaty. He comes with a bow. We believe it's the same treaty that the prophet Daniel spoke about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Let me read that to you. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant or a treaty with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now there's a... There's a lot of stuff going on in that verse, but it agrees perfectly with what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 and 25 and with what we're reading about here in Revelation. He, the Antichrist, is going to come forward and enter into a peace treaty with Israel for one week. In Daniel's writing, a week means a week of years, a week of seven years, which is the period of the tribulation. 
He'll um, allow them to reestablish their sacrifice and offering in the temple. But then it says in the middle of that time period, that sacrifice and offering will cease. Well, that's because the Antichrist goes into the temple and he declares that he is God uh, and he begins his campaign of uh, genocide against the nation of Israel. And that's what the wings of the abomination are or what Jesus called the abomination that makes desolate. It is when that temple is uh, defiled by the Antichrist. So the Bible agreeing with itself, always commenting on itself. Uh, if you, I think I told you before, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the book of the Revelation makes perfect sense because it really ties everything together. And so it's clear that the Antichrist brings peace uh, and he wears a crown. That's the word that describes a victory wreath, not the crown of a sovereign ruler. So again, it's not Jesus Christ, it's the Antichrist. And let me clarify one thing. The Antichrist isn't in heaven waiting to ride out on a white horse. He's a real person, maybe alive now, we don't know. We won't know him as the church. The actual rider in heaven is a mighty angel whose release from heaven represents the rise of the Antichrist on the earth. In other words, when he's released in heaven, it coincides with what happens on the earth. These angels, one by one, ride forth and they release from heaven, releasing the events on the earth they represent. By this, we are to understand that what's happening on the earth is under the supervision and oversight of heaven that God is in charge of these events. Now the peace is short-lived as you see the second horseman ride forth in verse three. Then he opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. It was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. There was given to him a great sword. Now, we encountered the four living creatures earlier in the Revelation, and we said they were a type of angel on special assignment before the throne of God. We'll notice that each of the four living creatures surrounding God's throne in heaven are involved in the release of the horses and the horsemen. This just lets us know this is an intricately choreographed scene in which the activity in heaven represents what occurs on the earth. They've been practicing for this for centuries. Those of you who've been in uh, you know, drama club or maybe you've been in civic light, theater, that kind of thing, uh, you know sometimes you forget your lines. Sometimes other people forget their lines. They don't hit their mark. Uh, you know, and, and things just kind of go sideways. They go haywire. That's not what's gonna happen in the end times. These guys, these angels, these creatures, these horsemen, everybody is prepped and ready to go uh, and that's why when the first angel says proceed, it's like we would say, hey, action and then this stuff is going to unfold. I like to remind you of that because uh, culture at large, although they're buying into these apocalyptic images, a lot of movies and television shows and documentaries and History Channel stuff about the apocalypse and the end of the world, they think it could go a variety of different ways depending on our responses uh, and, and that maybe God will do something different. And I'm telling you, that the revelation is telling us exactly what's going to happen once those seals are opened. There is no stopping it, it's on. Um, John sees the heavenly power behind the earthly drama. That's a great sentence, isn't it? The heavenly power behind the earthly drama. 
Whatever drama is in your life right now or in the future, heaven is aware of it and has resources in abundance for you to draw from during it. You're going to have a lot of drama in your life. Uh, I mean, that Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation. He wasn't talking about the great tribulation. He was talking about run-of-the-mill trouble. But run-of-the-mill trouble is, is pretty serious in all of our lives. But it's a drama on the earth, and there's a heavenly power for you to draw from as you go through it. Now, the second horseman, the second mighty angel, represents the next series of events on the earth, and that is wars. There will be wars and rumors of wars as nation rises up against nation. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Don't harm the oil and the wine. This third horseman represents the next series of events on the earth. Scarcity that is brought on by war and the forced rationing of goods. A denarius was one day's wages at that time. It was enough money to buy three meals. A quart of wheat is the quantity one person would eat at one meal. Barley was considered animal food. And so what you're learning here is that people will not be able to buy enough food. And the food they will buy will be more like animal food. It, it's like when you go to the store and sadly you see uh, elderly people buying cat food and they buy a lot of it, and you hope that they have cats. Uh, if they're buying cat food and top ramen and spam, uh, then you know, I think you can get through a day for like a dollar and a half. Uh, but it's not really all that edible. Have you ever tried to eat cat food? I don't recommend it. My cat loves it. I don't know what it is about cat food that makes cats love it, but it's disgusting. It smells disgusting. It tastes disgusting. <laughs> Hey, I went to college once. I mean, if it wasn't for Dinty Moore beef stew and Top Ramen, I would have died. Uh, but anyway. At the same time, there's no problem obtaining oil and wine. This is the equivalent of luxury items. And this is the Bible's way of telling us that the rich will be unaffected while the poor are devastated. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and by beasts of the earth. Death refers to the body. Hades refers to the soul. And so when you die, your physical body expires and uh, your soul and your spirit uh, go somewhere. If you're a non-believer, they go to Hades. One-fourth of the population of the earth will be killed. If there are seven billion people on the earth, which I think is the current number, one-fourth would be one and three-quarter billion people. And that is just the beginning of the people that are going to die during that time. The word sword refers to continuing wars. Hunger is the ensuing scarcities and famine. Death refers to plagues and pestilences. Beasts refers to living organisms of any size. Could even be a reference to microscopic killers such as zombie viruses. Well, viruses, I don't know about the zombie part. I just like, like everybody else, I'm fascinated with zombies. 
This is just the beginning of the storm of the centuries. Things will get much worse as we go on into the revelation, especially after the midpoint at the breaking of the seventh seal. Now, I want to pause to point out that John is safe in heaven as the seals are opened. If you were with us when we studied chapters 4 and 5, you know that John was raptured to heaven prior to the seals being opened. He is a type of our being raptured to heaven prior to the seals being opened. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ during this church age, will be in heaven safe during the great day of God's wrath. Absolutely, 100%. Believers on the earth, however, will not fare so well. They will be vulnerable. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Millions on the earth during the tribulation will get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see how in subsequent chapters how God is going to go about preaching the gospel. The believers described in the fifth seal are tribulation period martyrs. It's going to be most difficult to openly share your faith as the tribulation goes on. The majority of those who do so, who declare Jesus as Savior or who have found out to be Christians, they're going to be killed. Their crime on earth will be twofold, the word of God and the testimony which they held. The apostle John, the one receiving this revelation, was himself described as being persecuted for the word of God and for his testimony. It points to that moment of crisis when no matter the human cost, you must take your stand for Jesus Christ. And again, in those days, in the tribulation, especially after the midpoint, when the Antichrist has taken over the global economy, and you can't buy or sell anything, you can't do anything because you're locked out of that system, it'll be easy to identify who the Christians are, who the Jews are, and they will be mercilessly persecuted. In the time in which we live, if a believer dies, we know that his or her spirit and soul goes immediately to heaven to await the future resurrection of their body at the time of the rapture. To be absent from your body, as a Christian, is to be present with the Lord. Non-believers who die will still go to the torment of Hades to await their future resurrection. During the tribulation, believers who die will go to a specific part of heaven. It says here, they'll go under the altar. And then verse 10 says, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs aren't seeking revenge per se. They are longing for God's righteous rule on the earth that will put an end to evil once and for all. It's their way of saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's okay for us to wonder how long. At the same time, we must keep any sense of vengeance in check. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Our part, should we be called upon to be martyred, is to give a testimony of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And, and that's what these guys do. That's what martyrs do uh, today and in every uh, previous century. The cry of the martyrs is a sweet sound in heaven. It's like a musical prelude that anticipates the Lord coming forth. And so from under the throne of God, they cry out, how long, how long? And we know from what we're reading in Revelation, it won't be very long at all. God's just giving men on earth one final opportunity to be saved. Verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them. 
White robes are just one of my favorite symbols to describe salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Bible, the sinner is depicted as standing before God in filthy garments that are unsuitable for entrance into heaven. You can't buy new garments. You can't earn new garments. You can't uh, clean your garments and make them clean enough. No matter what we do, uh, when we come before God, we are in filthy, disgusting garments that are not suitable to let us into heaven. But because Jesus died on the cross in place of the sinner, he can remove our filthy garment and give us a white robe, and God can thereby declare us righteous. It's an exchange. When I come to the cross and confess that Jesus Christ is my Savior because I'm a sinner, he takes my filth and gives me his righteousness. He takes that garment off of me by grace through faith, and he gives me as a gift his perfect white robe. And then God the Father looks at me in Christ, and even though I haven't changed a bit, he says, you're qualified now for heaven, and I who have begun this good work in you will perform it day by day until you are perfected in heaven. And so that's how you get these white robes. These tribulation martyrs are described as conscious souls. They will not have their glorified physical bodies till they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation in Revelation 20. Since they're given robes, it's clear they have some substance. Whether they have a temporary body or whether their soul itself has substance, I don't know and I don't see why it really matters. Verse 11, it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Persecution and martyrdom against Christians will characterize the whole tribulation from start to finish. Together, this group of martyrs is described as brethren and fellow servants. Brethren has to do with their relationship. No matter what tribe or tongue or nation or people they were from, they were brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Fellow servants describes responsibilities as they ministered one to another prior to their martyrdom. Christians are in the relationship of being spiritual brothers and sisters because we are born into God's family. We all have very different earthly family backgrounds, um, but together we are a spiritual family. It's a shame that so many families are dysfunctional. I think it can contribute to the ease with which we quit striving with one another, forgiving one another, bearing with one another in the church. Too often a Christian who has a problem of some kind with others in the church, their solution is to just break off fellowship and maybe go someplace else or maybe not even go anyplace else. Uh, and it's really a freedom, uh, it's a freedom we don't have. We're able to do it, but it's not in the will of God. It's not a freedom that we have. We need to strive with one another. Sometimes when we're joking, we say, man, the church would be great if there weren't any people in it. Because people are rough, right? I always think I'm right. Most of the time I am. <laughs> and that's the problem. Because you think that too. And when we get together, uh, it's teeth and eyeballs sometimes, you know? It's like a cage fight. But we have to love each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord and strive with one another because we're, we're, the, we're our family. We, uh, we want to be dysfunctional in a Christian way. <laughs> well, 
we're always going to be a dysfunctional family. You know that, right? I mean, there's no perfect church. You've heard it before. Every minister says it three or four times a year. If you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Uh, and, and that's true, you know? I mean, you're just going to, these people are perfect. What can I do to mess this up? Uh, because I just, I can't hang with this, you know? Now, there's going to be a completed number of tribulation martyrs. Again, we see this as a specific group of believers unique to the tribulation. It's an exclusive club. I call it Club TM, tribulation martyr. Completed isn't just a numerical reference, however. It also tells us that this group completes their mission and their purpose. It's a mission-accomplished statement. Martyrdom accomplishes a purpose. It is a testimony and a witness in a really powerful way to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you think about it. I know it's hard because we're Christians and, and we know what we believe, but, you know, like what's going on with ISIS now and they're grabbing Christians and, and they come to people and say, look, all you have to do is renounce Jesus Christ and we will spare your life. We won't kill your children in front of you. We won't behead you. All you have to do is say, okay, yeah, I renounce Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They give a testimony for Jesus Christ. And it's powerful. Does their head get cut off? Sure. Is that tragic? Absolutely. But the testimony is amazing. It's powerful. Paul the Apostle. Gino, in his study on Wednesday morning, was talking about how he was like a an early version of ISIS when he, as a Jew, was going around destroying the church. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr, got pelted with stones, giving approval to it, going wherever he could to mercilessly kill and imprison Christians. But each one of those testimonies had its work on his heart until the Lord found him on the Damascus Road. And he said, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. What goads? the goads of testimony as Christians like Stephen with smiling faces, with glowing faces as they were being stoned to death were received into heaven. Man, that is some powerful stuff. And so the voice of the martyrs cries out, you and I, we want to complete our mission and hear the words, well done. I'm hoping our mission doesn't involve martyrdom. It might, I'm hoping it doesn't, but whether or not it does, we want to give our testimony, lend our voice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 12 through 17, you hear the voices of martyrs crying out on the earth. I thought I made that word up. I was pretty proud of myself. Then I found out it used to be a word at one time. We just don't use it much because it's hard to say. But martyrs is the right word. The saddest thing about the tribulation is that even facing the horrifying judgments, men are going to refuse to repent and instead kill God's saints seeking to silence their testimony. But as I said, it only amplifies it. So verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. Are earthquakes increasing in frequency? Well, in 2014, the LA Times posted a story titled, Quakes are increasing, but scientists aren't sure what it means. Other sources say they are not really increasing. It's just that we have better uh, reporting methods than ever before. A lot of times we point to the increase in earthquakes as a sign of the end times. Maybe, maybe not. You have to remember that when Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 talked about earthquakes increasing in various places, he's talking about in the tribulation. You're already in the tribulation when Jesus is talking in Matthew 24 and 25. So 
earthquake frequency really means nothing uh, on this side of the tribulation. And so that's one thing that we don't talk about very much because it's not necessarily a sign of the end times. We do know that there will be a major earthquake just before the middle of the tribulation. We're going to see it a little later in the book. It will preview massive upheavals yet to come on planet Earth. Uh, verse 12 goes on, says, The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Uh, we've talked before about uh, blood moons and their significance as a sign in the heavens. These signs in the tribulation are going to be terrifying stellar events. The prophet Joel predicted that the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. He said the sun and the moon will be darkened and stars withdraw their shining. Just towards the middle of the tribulation, God is going to use the sun and the moon as signs of his great power. He's going to, he's going to tweak the sun and the moon in weird ways. He'll be trying to get mankind to pay attention to the preaching of his witnesses on the earth. You know how you can't avoid talking about the weather every single day? Have you ever gone through a day and somebody hasn't talked about the weather? I don't know what it is about it. I can't stand it, but I do it too. You go into the bank, ah, how's it doing out there? It's hot one out there. Oh, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, it's kind of hot, but you know, and, and it's uh, so during the tribulation, people love to talk about the weather. You got 15 weather apps, you know, so you can check the weather on Catalina Island and, you know, Disneyland, so you know what it's all. Oh, I wish I was in Anaheim right now, you know, and all that kind of stuff. In the tribulation, you're going to. Sun a lot less bright than it used to be. <laughs> Where did the moon go? What are these meteors hitting the earth? I mean, you're going to talk about some weather events. That's when it's going to happen. I don't, know if an, I don't know if there's an app for that, but it's going to be powerful. It's like when the lights are dimmed at the theater, it alerts you that the real show is about to start. And so about middle of the tribulation, God's going to say, okay, gloves off, it's me now. The things that have happened up to this point, you might be able to attribute to mankind, even though I've told you they're not. But from here on in, everything that happens is going to be spiritual and supernatural. The signs in the heavens show his mercy because he'll be telling mankind what they can expect if they refuse his offers of salvation. Verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Shooting stars are the common name for the streak of light produced by a meteor as the small bits of it burn up when passing through our atmosphere. These are meteorites striking the earth. Meteors do hit the earth. You can visit the International Meteor Collectors Association website for some great true stories. Meteors are pretty valuable. If you find one, if it doesn't hit you and kill you and you actually find it, uh, you can get a lot of money for it. Verse 14, uh, the sky receded as a scroll and when it rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. A scroll is generally pictured as a parchment with rolled ends. Isaiah 42.5 excuse me, says that God stretched out the heavens. Isaiah 34.4 says the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. Skeptics laughed at these comments for years, but not so much anymore, because now we know that the universe is indeed expanding, and quantum physics and the findings of the Hubble spacecraft verify that that the universe is curved, whatever that means, and it might even be described as scroll-like in shape. 
For the sky to recede as a scroll when it is rolled up would imply that the atmospheric heavens have suddenly and rapidly cleared themselves as if in preparation for something or someone to arrive. It's like the opening of a curtain. Though this sixth seal doesn't have an apocalyptic sense of the second coming of Jesus, it's only the preview. It's not Jesus. He doesn't come for another three and a half years after this. And again, these amazing mid-trib signs and sufferings are to let us know, to let the earth people know, the earth dwellers at that time know that it is God. The first five seal judgments can be variously interpreted by ungodly men as acts of men, war, famine, those kinds of things. The sixth seal leaves little to the imagination. They will know this is an act of God. And not just the way we talk about acts of God, like nature out of control. Uh, I mean, it's one thing for a hurricane to be the strongest hurricane ever, or, or for a storm to be the storm of the century, but they still act like storms and hurricanes. What starts happening at this point is phenomenal. It's beyond physics and people are going to have to know that it is God. And they will know it. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, slaves and free men hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? No other explanation will do. These things are definitely the work of God. They're being administered by Jesus as he prepares the earth for his return. Everyone, every single person on the earth will know God is calling to them and that Jesus is coming. This is the grace of his wrath. Mankind will choose to take shelter in those final days of the first half of the tribulation. The prepper movement will have its ultimate heyday as people go out to caves and dens seeking to hide from these judgments. But if we were doing a television series at that time, the theme song we would have to choose is nowhere to run to, baby, nowhere to hide. Uh, because you're not going to be able, there's no bunker deep enough, no cave you know, deep enough into a mountain no amount of food or anything that is going to allow individuals to survive unscathed the tribulation on the earth. Uh, if we talked about viruses and those kinds of things, later in the tribulation, uh, a, a, an angel is going to open the bottomless pit and a demon army is going to come out flying around like locusts. And I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to get away from it and they're gonna torment men for a period of time, and you won't be even able to die. Not only hide, you won't be able to die. You'll want to die if you're a non-believer afflicted in that time, and you won't be able to. But you know what? I maintain our position that it is the grace of God's wrath, because once you do die, you're headed for a Christless eternity, and God says, I'm gonna make things as miserable as possible so that you will turn to me, so that you will know I live and that I love you. I can't accept sin. I can't accept you the way you are, but I've made a way, and it's a simple way. All you have to do is believe my son, Jesus Christ, and men will say, hey, forget that. We'd rather kill your sons uh, believers and hide in the rocks. And God says, well, I'm going to find you. 
And I'm going to confront every last one of you with the gospel of Jesus Christ and give you that final chance before you die, and after that comes real judgment. The real shelter is always spiritual. It is to be found safe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is God's shelter in every generation. The vast majority of you have found that shelter, that spiritual shelter. You are Christians, having been born again. If you're backslidden, return to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, you're hiding out in the open right now. And the Lord is seeking after you. His Holy Spirit is here drawing you to faith in Christ. Let's pray together.